Welcome back to the 54th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one that delves into the omnibus bill and one of the acts that Bernie Sanders got through, a memo that broke American politics. I think that's a pretty interesting one. And yes, I did bury it in the middle because I think it's the most intriguing one. And I want you guys to listen just a tad bit longer. And the last one talks about the massive water battery that has been finished in Switzerland. And I think it's a pretty interesting concept. And I love where they're headed with this. It's just amazing to see human ingenuity. And then, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. Should private and public companies be able to lobby politicians as much as they do in Washington? Should we be forcing them to get their money out of Washington? You know, it sounds like a pretty easy question to me, but an argument could be made that companies deserve a voice in the operation of the country and regulations that they are going to have to face. And, you know, I think it was pretty clever if they want to come up with a tagline. They could say, no regulation without representation. And, you know, these kind of things are questions that need to be asked when we look at our political system currently and we say are the people having proper representation in Washington is their voice being properly heard or is it coming through a filter of big business money and oh well if your ideas if what the populace wants aligns with what the businesses wants then we can actually go forward on it rather than trying to make sure that the constituents' needs and wants are met first, considering they have the most direct voting power. So I'll rephrase it and sum it up here. Should these companies be able to wield such power? And if not, what is a solution that you see to limit their influence? If you have an opinion, throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear it. I know there's been legislation proposed by Ted Cruz and AOC. So there are solutions out there. And let's be clear, it's going to be hard to get the normal ones through when most of the people that would have to back the legislation are the ones getting the money from these companies. But maybe you have a more creative solution, and I'd love to hear it. All right, let's jump into our first story. This one comes from Truth Out. Sanders' bill to expand workplace democracy passes Senate in omnibus. See, this is a nice non-clickbaity title. It just gets almost straight to the workplace. It has its biases because if a conservative outlet was saying this, they would say, Sanders' bill to restrict employers uh, passes Senate in the omnibus bill. So, you know, of course there is the bias there, but it's a pretty straightforward headline. It's nice to see those rather than the clickbaity ones. And yes, I understand the irony of me saying that with some of my titles and thumbnails being a bit clickbaity, clickbaity sometimes. So for 13 years, Senator Sanders has been pushing for these 
this particular piece of legislation, the Work Act, Worker Ownership, Readiness, and Knowledge, is meant to allow workers to be more informed, to give them the resources in order to organize companies in a way that benefits them, that these companies are worker-led, essentially. And it's one thing that he's been working on, like I said, for 13 years, and he also implemented a small thing that's similar to it in his home state of Vermont. I'll actually go to the quote here. Quote, modeled on the excess of employee ownership centers in Ohio and Vermont, Sanders' Worker Ownership Readiness and Knowledge Work Act authorizes a $50 million grant program to help create and expand employee ownership centers around the country. As Sanders' office explained, these centers provide workers with the tools they need to own their own business through employee stock option plans or eligible worker-owned cooperatives. This act will authorize the U.S. Department of Labor to provide education and outreach, training, and technical support for local and state programs dedicated to the promotion of employee ownership and participation. End quote. So as a, as a business major... This most definitely is a subject that has piqued my interest when stepping back and looking at what's being proposed here and seeing there's also a move beyond this bill. There's a, a want, a need socially for a lot of millennials and some early Gen Zers who say, no, no, I actually want a stake in the company I'm working in, not just stock options. I want to have a outside, not outsized, a stake a say in how the company operates. So this has been part of the broader society and culture for a little bit now, and it had piqued my interest. And the premise, of course, sounds nice. Companies buy and for the people, essentially. But I don't know how practical, and more importantly, how successful these companies would be at the end of the day. Though this is exactly why Sanders wants to help fund these education programs. This is to help people like me who may be stubborn in their ways, people who don't necessarily know as much about these programs and the benefits that they bring and educate us, basically. And speaking of the benefits of self-ownership, quote, research has shown that worker-owners-led groups to higher wages better benefits, and more secure retirement, and reduce gender and racial wealth disparities. In addition, employee-owned enterprises see lower turnover and increased output. Sanders' office attributes these positive effects to improving employee morale, dedication, creativity, and productivity as workers share in profits and have more control over their own lives. Other studies have shown that worker-owned companies in the U.S. are more or less likely to outsource jobs and more likely to experience stronger profits and shareholder returns. According to one recent analysis, scaling up employee ownership could quadruple the share of wealth held by the bottom 50% of the U.S. households. End quote. And this does sound great and i there are certain business premises or at least in discussions we've had during class that really do elaborate on this and really reinforce it which is the main one i think of is it 
increases productivity and it increases the overall shareholder profit or shareholder returns. Because if the people working at that company, if they are shareholders, if they own stock, then they want their stock to be valuable at the end of the day. They want the to be able to retire and sell their shares and live off that money. So, of course, if they're offered stock options, then yes, they're going to take them and they're going to work hard to make sure that those stock options are valuable and that the company doesn't collapse. And at the end of the day, if you feel like you have more control over your company, if you have more control over the way it's operated, if you're more dedicated because of that, then, of course, your morale is going to be higher, or at least in theory alone. But there are many counterpoints, or there's at least two main counterpoints that really came to mind when I was reading through this and thinking, sitting down and thinking about it. One, with decentralized control of a company, it can become extremely hard to pivot and deal with quickly changing conditions or in the case of an emergency, it can be extremely hard to adequately handle that situation when you have to consult with multiple different people. Now, this could technically be remedied. You could have a CEO, even though that defeats the purpose, but if you wanted to have a hybrid system where it's still worker-owned, but you have a CEO or an operational manager on the floor who is selected by everybody in the company. And at any point, those people could vote them out, a vote of no confidence, essentially. Then, yes, I think that's a way to do it. Then again, it does, the the company's still worker-owned, but it kind of defeats the purpose of having a company run only by the employees rather than having a centralized head figure who has the vision and a unified way of thinking rather than having to constantly consult 10 different people before you make any type of decision. And that's what both of my points kind of circle around, which is this decentralized way of operating a business. It sounds amazing. At the end of the day, if you're a worker in that company or you want to be a worker in that company, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, this sounds great. I don't have many higher-ups that I have to report to. All I'm liable to is myself and my fellow owners in the company. That, that does sound great. But at the end of the day, it can cause, which is my second point here, it can cause a lack of vision. If you have one person at the helm with a strategic vision, then they can guide the entire company. They can implement the values they want in their employees. They can change the company culture, even though it is hard. They can try to change the company culture in a certain direction. When you have 10 different drivers trying to drive the car, you're likely to crash. If you have 10 different people with different value systems and they're all trying to work together, and there's not one person dictating what the values of the company are, there's going to be a lot of clashes there. And this is brought out by some studies that we've read about culture in some of my business classes, how it's extremely hard and extremely important to have a cohesive all-in-one culture rather than having multiple ideas of how we want to go about doing our business. If one person is extremely moral and ethic, that's that's great. We, We love that. 
But if there's another person who is amoral, has very little concern for ethics, and they're both in the same pool of people, I mean, theoretically, they'll balance themselves out. But at the end of the day, they're going to cause clashes. And if they're able to control how they do their business, then you'll have one person acting in an ethical manner, one person acting in an unethical manner. And then that gives mixed messages. It makes the company less consistent, less reliable. People aren't going to want to necessarily come back unless they go to Susie rather than Bobby. And then what if Susie leaves? So this idea of having a decentralized way of controlling a company and having the power in the hands of the people, it, like I said, it sounds great. And I'm not even saying it sounds great in theory because in theory, the things I just mentioned kind of come up and the theory of it falls apart just a little bit but it does sound nice and there probably is a way to have a hybrid to have a mix of the traditional one head leader or a boardroom that elects the upper management and then have some sort of voting means by the employees on the board and now do i know if that would necessarily work out the best probably not but at the end of the day, there is a hybrid solution here. And I think that if people really want this, they can go found their own companies. And if they found their own companies with this in mind from the very beginning, I think it can work. But where I think it becomes dangerous is when companies try to transition to this kind of ownership, when they've had these structures, these levels of control in place for so long. I think that's going to be extremely dangerous. Now, if you build from the ground up, I think that it can work because it's built into the culture from the very beginning that we are decentralized and you're probably going to write out core tenants and you're going to write a mission statement, so on and so forth. And at that point, I think it could work. And then I'd love to see how they, they come out. I'd love to see these companies, if they survive, if they thrive, if they beat out traditional companies, it'd be an interesting reapproach to how we handle business. And I say reapproach because this is how it used to be. Only we weren't calling it businesses, we were calling it family units where though there was necessarily a head, sometimes it was a head of a household, a lot of the time the family who was operating the farm, they were all making decisions on the fly trying to make sure everything works out well and then go to the market, sell their food. So this is just a retooling of how historically people have operated before. We're just coming in or they're trying to implement this in a time when we've had very rigid business structures for a long time now. Yeah, I went on for a while on this one and I I am sorry, but I'm a business major and I found it very intriguing. So let's jump into our second story. This one comes from Raw Story, the memo that broke American politics. So obviously the headline is quite sensational and to be honest, I think American politics was broken, if not failing, falling apart, or at least breaking a little bit before the 70s. But the author does make some, some good comments here. Quote, the corporate takeover of American politics started with a man and a memo you've probably never heard of. In 1971, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce asked Lewis Powell, a corporate attorney, who would go on to become a Supreme Court justice to draft a memo on the state of the country. Powell's memo argued that the American economic system 
was, quote, under broad attack, end quote, from consumer, labor, and environmental groups. In reality, these groups were doing nothing more than enforcing the implicit social contract that had emerged at the end of the Second World War. They wanted to ensure corporations were responsible to all their stakeholders, workers, consumers, and the environment, not just their shareholders, end quote. So my first important question is what does the author mean when they say implicit social contract? And don't get me wrong, I understand the neoliberal worldview that emerged after World War II and how it had some effect on businesses. But most business owners were not trying, were just trying to get by. They weren't trying and they weren't thinking about the broader impact, the societal impact, the environmental impact of their products. Only through years of regulation and government involvement has that thought process been been shaped without the government coming in and saying, or having, let's take a great example of the EPA, without the government creating the EPA and telling companies, you need to focus on these environmental impact factors, then a lot of business owners probably would never think about how their business affects the environment. Or even if they had protesters outside their company, they may think about it, but they may not actually act on it. They may not understand that it's a crucial part to how a business operates nowadays. So when the author says the implicit social contract, no, 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 it's not a social contract. At the end of the day, like I said, companies were just trying to get by. Now, there was a push from people at the higher ends of government, the people that were founding the UN, the ones who were writing the International Human Rights Bill or environmental protection uh, bills, I guess not technically a bill, but a regulation or a treaty statement on the international level. Those higher-ups were saying that this stuff was important, but the common, the layman, was not necessarily saying it was as important. And a lot of business owners, like I said, they were just trying to get through these hard economic times. We were still coming out of the Depression at that point, or at least we were still feeling the aftershocks of the major parts of the Depression. So I don't necessarily agree with the author's premise in this one, or at least in this part of it. The next part, I, I do have some some uh, alignments with where the author's coming from. But I think it's really important to point out here that it was no, it wasn't a social implicit contract. It was actually the government retooling the way that businesses have to approach or should think about doing business. It's the government that came in and started making huge worker boards that allow for disputes between workers and companies, the Civil Rights Act for discrimination law. It was the government that's constantly stepping in and saying that you need to focus on these issues. You need to make sure that you're hiring this certain type of population, that you're not breaking these certain laws, that you're ensuring you have a safe workplace with OSHA. It's actually the government coming in saying that these are important things, that we want to protect the people in these areas. We want to ensure that these values aren't just held by us in Congress and by the people, but also by companies. So no, it's not a socially implicit contract. It's a government-mandated contract that over time has shaped the way businesses have to work. And then in turn, how business people have to think. 
nowadays you go through school and there is no way that you're not reading a chapter about protecting the environment, that you're not reading a chapter about protecting your workers or going through and learning about the laws behind it, the regulation, the administrative agencies that are actually used to enforce these regulations. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, you can't say it's a socially committed contract. You can't say it's a social contract because even if the people want it, even if the people want it, then maybe you could say that. But it would have to stay completely in the realm of protests, people speaking out against these companies, not buying their products. That would be a social it would be a purely social contract between the society and the businesses. It is not. It is maybe it is the government listening to their people and then enforcing regulation, but that's still the government involved. But I think more honestly, it is there are some very loud advocates and there are some NGOs growing at the time that had outside sway in the government and they wanted their belief system, they wanted their thoughts to be implemented their rules to be forced upon certain businesses. And let's be clear, I think a lot of these regulations are good. But that is also because I grew up, grew up, grew up in a time when these are standard place. I went to business school in a time when they are not just temporary measures, they are in place, they've been in place for a long time, and people in the business world have had to adjust their way of thinking. So, of course, I don't necessarily think they're as bad. If I was a person from the 1940s, they may say, look at the government infringing the rights of businesses so much. This is unacceptable. So I just think it's an interesting point to highlight, and I want to make sure that when you read something like that, really start to analyze the words that they use and when they use them, how they any author uses them. Because some phrases, some words imply a lot more than they do they appear to superficially. All right, so the next quote. In his memo, Powell urged businesses to mobilize for political combat and stressed the critical ingredients for success were joint organization and funding. The chamber distributed the memo to leading CEOs, large businesses, and trade associations, hoping to persuade them that big business could dominate American politics in ways not seen since the Gilded Age. It worked. The chamber's call for business crusade birthed a new corporate political industry practically overnight. Tens of thousands of corporate lobbyists and political operatives descended to Washington and state capitals across the country, end quote. And this is where the author and I uh, agree most that lobbying, the lobbying industry, is has outsized control over legislation, the legislator in the on the federal level, and as well as in states. And you know, they really get to control which bills or which legislation get to see the light of day in this country. And to be blunt and a, a bit sensational, we have practically legalized corruption. We allow corporations to pay for massive fundraiser events for politicians to give them, not necessarily gifts, because that is illegal, but to give them roundabout speaking tours, the option to come speak at their business, at a college that they attended, and business opportunities. So we've basically said, okay, 
well, we don't want corruption in the under the table kind of sense. So we'll just make it public corruption. We'll just make it legal to do so. And you have to disclose all this. You have to disclose where the money comes from. But since we're telling everybody where how we're paying people off, then it's okay. But, you know, the winds are changing. And me- there are many more pro-antitrust legislators that have made it into office. So over time we'll be able to see if they could actually do anything to change how Washington operates. And, of course, you if you know me, you know that I think it's going to be hard. I don't necessarily know if we're going to see any change. But there is a glimmer of hope here. When you have bipartisan support on certain antitrust bills, from Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz, then there is a little bit of hope in my jaded heart that we can affect change, that there is a populist sentiment that people understand the power of these companies and that the legislator isn't taking it as a joke. They're taking this issue seriously. They're understanding that we may have to have another early 1900s where we're busting up huge companies that have an outsized control over the economy, and the social fabric, and we'll see where it goes. There is a lot of money still involved from these private companies, and I think it's going to be hard to convince senators and congressmen that they need to break up these companies, they need to address the money flowing in from the lobbyists because it directly benefits them and allows them to keep running. Maybe we should impose term limits. I've been saying that for a long time. If you've known me for a long time, I've been saying that, and I think we should have it. Then again, if I was elected to Congress, I'd probably get there and go, "Um, I could do it in two more years. Oh, I could do it in six more years. So maybe it's not as simple as I make it sound. All right. We have one more article today before we get to our daily delight. And this one is from My Modern Met. Massive water battery is now in operation in the Swiss Alps. Quote, solar and wind energy are the future. But both of these renewable, sustainable energy sources are dependent on varying environmental conditions. Where does one store the energy produced by solar panels on a summer day or windmills churning in a breeze as it rips over the ocean? Traditional batteries require minerals that are dangerous and damaging to the earth. While some researchers are pursuing experimental solutions, the water battery is a tried and true method for storing energy. An enormous Swiss water battery project known as Not de Dranche, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, is at last operational. It is a glimpse into the future of energy storage, end quote. In, when I first read this, I personally thought this was absolutely ingenious. And to be clear, I still think it is pretty darn amazing. But I, I do wonder if global warming that is on the horizon and rising temperatures if both of those factors are going to make this a good long-term solution, because if water is able to evaporate more quickly, then they're going to have to constantly pump in water to this reserve, and it's, it's going to be interesting. And even if it's supplied naturally, if it snows less in the Alps, which... Let's be clear, I don't think it's going to snow that much less. There's almost snow in those that region all year round. But if it's going to snow in the Alps less, then that means less water feeding into those reserves as well. So 
we'll we'll see. We'll see. It's just one doubt that popped into my head when I was first reading it when I got a little bit further in. Quote, after years of hard work, the system dot dranche is now operational. When in use to generate power, the turbines produce 900 megawatts of power, enough to power 900,000 homes. So how does the water battery work? When excess energy is needed to be stored, that energy is used to pump water from the lower to upper reservoir. This is like charging a battery. The water then remains at the top of the system until the energy is needed, where it can store 20 million kilowatt hours of energy. The water is then channeled back down, passing through massive turbines. They spin to harvest the stored energy. Simple physics is therefore a powerful solution to the storage problem of renewable energy. End quote. So as a solution for rechargeable batteries and massive energy cells made of cobalt, lithium, other dangerous metals, I think this is a, a great solution and one that could last for generations and it could really cut down on mineral waste and the amount of people needed to mine those minerals in the deep jungles of the, the Congo where millions upon millions of people are being exploited to mine different minerals that we use and trivially here in the United States and in the Western world. So I think that this is a, a step and it could be a solution to hold us over until we have a better understanding of fuel cells and we have better technology that allows us to reuse some of the old metals that we are already using in all of our products. And, you know, not to mention, this is extremely elegant. It is a, an extremely Swiss way to go about solving this issue of having energy storage issues. And I, I found it, you know, really, really cool, really amazing. Like I said, elegant, ingenious. And the only thing I have to say before we jump into our daily delight is, of course, it was the Swiss that did it. We could learn a lot from the Swiss. All right, let's jump into our daily delight. Deaf white cat enjoys riding around London on bicycle. So I imagine that if you're living in a big city like London, it would actually be a blessing to be deaf in that you can't hear all the crazy noise going on around you. And to be clear, it is different for a cat that's looked after by people rather than a person I would not wish deafness, blindness, muteness, anything like that on anybody. But for this cat, it makes life a little bit easier. Quote, a beautiful white Norwegian forest cat named Sigrid enjoys riding around London in the basket of her human, Travis Nelson's bicycle, so much that she demands to go whenever he does. Because Siegfried is deaf, the loud noises of the city don't bother her, nor does the constant attention she receives from passersby. And I bet this little one absolutely loves all the attention, all the pets that she receives. Uh, you know, that's probably why she goes out. It's not because she wants to be with her human or go on an adventure. It's because it's of the attention. But that's just my opinion on the matter. The pair have logged long distances so far. Nothing really shocks her or surprises her. We've been basically all over London. We're up to 700 miles total for her career of riding, end quote. And it's a, she's a cute little one. And yeah, lucky to get out there and not have to be locked in the house all the time. So if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos or 
read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. And down there also is the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Try to put something up there every once in a while. Links to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday go live. So you can just click in there rather than having to come to YouTube and try to find it. But with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.